2: Hey, this is DeRay, welcome to the People. In this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then we're joined by Dr. Singer Harrison to talk about mental health addiction and what happens to the world after lockdown. Now, my word for the week is simple. It is just, have some fun none of us could have imagined that a we'd be on lockdown like this b it would be this long so all the like quote normal ways of being in the world everything should be up for grabs you should be able to entertain some ways to engage in joy that's safe and fun you know i talk about this a little later but i've been obsessed with some gaming systems and i'm not really a gamer and i never really got into games but i had the time and i was like let me just try and i'm hooked so Open yourself up, let yourself experience some fun, throw out all the preconceived notions. Let's do it.
3: Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pack Yeti on all social media.
4: And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third.
2: I, aye, aye, Dr. Clint Smith the Third in the house. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. You're never entertained by that. Mm-hmm.
4: Clint was going to jump through the screen and attack DeRay. <laughs> this is DeRay at
2: D-R-A-Y on Twitter. COVID free, DeRay. COVID free. Woo-woo. I can smell. I can
3: taste. And now that you can taste, you don't like almond milk very
2: much. <laughs> I know I drank almond milk for four, four weeks, y'all, but I couldn't taste it. And then I drank it and was like, I don't like this. I think I'm going to try oat milk <laughs> next because I also had a little bit of oat milk while I couldn't taste and smell and um and I don't know what it tastes like. So I'm excited to but I do know what the trash smells like again because I needed those Harree trash bags back baby. But I couldn't waste the good trash bags while I couldn't smell, so I just started to use the unscented ones cuz That's real. It didn't matter.
3: The lavender scented ones are the best. But in better news, not only are you COVID free, not only is Clint Dr. Clint Smith, I, I, I. Not only does Sam have one of the best views in all of New York City, this is once again the multi-Webby award-winning Pod Save the People. We are grateful to the Webby Awards for once again awarding us this year, this time in the diversity and inclusion category. We are grateful for another award. How does it feel to have another Webby, y'all?
5: This must be how Meryl Streep feels (laughs) because it's just raining every year we just show up and then we win and we're just like oh i had no idea this was gonna happen oh my gosh i'm kidding we are very humble we're it that is a joke we feel very honored it's dope it's, it's amazing that you know we started this thing three years ago Deray called me in the gym he's like hop on this phone call for my podcast and i was like oh great like let me put it in the schedule and he said nah it's in 15 minutes and i was like "Ooh!" and then look what we created Look at that. Before my kids. Was that before my
3: kids?
5: (laughs) That might have been before my kids were born. Dang, that's wild.
3: It was before your kids. Was it? I think it was before you and Ariel got married. Because I feel like we were at the wedding. And we like made a podcast joke at the wedding. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah.
5: Dang. Yeah.
3: We've had two whole weddings since this started. Two weddings. Two kids. Sam, his... Moved, Dere <laughs> went from having no COVID to COVID to having no COVID. I mean, the lot has happened. I love it, Sam. I love that you got moved. During That's what you time. got. They got married as a kid. Moved, Sam. Moved. <laughs> 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 that wasn't shade that wasn't shade i swear to god that wasn't shade um no we're extremely extremely grateful uh once again to have been awarded like i said this time in the diversity and inclusion category and you all know we try so often to make sure that we are bringing stories that are untold and unheard in other places about the communities that far too often go overlooked and as we move forward in this conversation I think one of the most important things we can talk about today is how we are filling our quarantined lives with our current obsessions. DeRay, what's yours?
2: So I don't play video games because I have no self-control. So the last video game that I played as an actual player was um, The Sims way back when, like when, when I was like, Back in the day, I was like 11 or 12, and I realized that I just couldn't stop. So I was like, you know what? So I have a rule that I only play multiplayer, that like... If you are willing to stay up all night and play with me, which very few people are, then like we can go. So I, I me and my sister play this game on the Switch every night and da-da-da. But like multiplayer is all I do. And then yesterday I started playing Animal Crossing. My eyes burn. It's all I've done. I just got to get my island together. I got to get the. If you play, let me know. The turnips have a whole um, stock market
3: Turnips, T-U-R-N-I-P, or like turn up. Mm,
2: it's called the stock market, like the stocks. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> this is my break from Animal Crossing today. It's very exciting. A world builder. Meet me on the island. Sam has Animal Crossing too, even if he doesn't say it, y'all, but it's okay. I'm going to see him on the island soon.
5: <laughs> Somebody explain to me the hype around Animal Crossing, because I struggle with games that ostensibly have no end point. Like, you build the world, but there's not, like, you don't win. Do you, did you play The Sims? Uh, I played Roller Coaster Tycoon. That was my joint. That was so fun.
2: That was good. So in those games, there weren't, like, clear goals that you had to meet. Like, you sort of just, like, built the world. In this, it's sort of like there are goals you have to meet, and you sort of get to build the world. So you, you feel like you're like, oh, I got to do that thing. or I got to do it. Whereas The Sims, you sort of just, like, build and build and build. And, you know, or remember SimCity back in the day, which was, like, Oh, that was a classic. But I love it. I thought it was just hype. And then I played and I literally, my, my eyes burned because I've been, I've been playing all for the past two days. So it's been great.
3: Uh, Clint, what are you currently obsessed with this quarantine?
5: I don't know that it's an obsession. I mean, it's been a collective obsession in our community is the verses? Uh, and we've talked about a couple of these the past few weeks, all sorts of different iterations. But something I've been thinking about, and we were talking about this a little bit before, is these sort of hypothetical verses of all these different folks. And I got hot takes and opinions about like who some of these verses will. So you got, let's imagine 112 versus Jagged Edge. I love Jagged Edge, but 112 clearly will roll over them. We were talking about Babyface versus Brian McKnight.
3: Let's be clear. DeRay was talking about Babyface versus Brian McKnight. That's not a competition. Oh wow. But it's okay. Bust me under. Bust, I'm under it. (laughs)
5: My sense is that Babyface contributed in a more robust way to the larger ecosystem of culture that we continue to benefit from today. But as a singer, as a singer, <laughs> I think Brian McKnight undoubtedly was outdoing Mr. Edmonds.
3: Which is why it's an apples to oranges comparison, to be honest. It is. Yeah.
5: It is. And then my hottest take, a take I couldn't say on Twitter because I would get ratio. is I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it.
3: Please say it on the podcast. Sure, that's a better <laughs> idea. To the point about Kenneth Babyface Edmonds, I just want to say that as a young devotee of the Waiting to Exhale era, I am currently on a Zoom with three men while Babyface is talking about the 25th anniversary of the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack. And as a... Young Black Girl, that was like so formative to my experience. This was the first kind of chorus of leave him, girl, that I had ever heard anywhere. (laughs) And I just (laughs) found it to be so empowering. I remember my mom talking to her girlfriends about the film and watching the cast on Oprah and her and my dad arguing about whether or not it was about hating men or empowering women. And it was a whole thing. My daddy was a feminist, but I think he was a little taken aback by just how quickly Angela Bassett burned that car. So I think he just was like not ready. So I just want to say that I just needed to get that out of my spirit because I'm not on the Instagram live right now engaging with that community. I'm here with you all and I love you, but I had to put that here. (laughs) The other verses that I think needs to happen is Jodeci versus Drew Hill. Hmm. Follow me here. The thing about verses, and the the reason why I think Timberland and Swisbee's do such a good job doing the matchups is because they really think about who from a particular era not only had a similar sound, but who owned like a, a similar. Time Right. And so this isn't necessarily true about Drew Hill and Jodeci, because in a lot of ways, Drew Hill got past the baton by Jodeci. That kind of bad boy, roughneck R&B, right, where it was like smooth, but also the dudes was grooving to it, too. That was Jodeci's thing. That's what they were known for. That was that Uptown sound. Shout out to Andre Harrell. Rest in peace, our brother. He brought that sound to us through Jodeci, and Drew Hill inherited that. But there really are few other groups like that that have the number of hits that Jodeci did. Silk, maybe, a couple of others. But I really think Jodeci and Drew Hill would be like an even matchup.
5: But they could just show love. That's what Jill Scott and Erykah Badu did. It was like very wholesome, very sweet.
3: And uh, now that we've talked about those critically important topics,
4: (laughs) the news. All right. So my news is about police accountability. Um, In particular, you know, we've talked a lot about policing and police violence on the pod over the past three years. But one of the big aspects of this issue that often goes unnoticed is the issue of qualified immunity. So just to backtrack, uh, when we're talking about police accountability, there's very little of it in this country, Um, but there are a couple of mechanisms by which if uh, police use excessive force against you, you may be able to get some sort of redress or relief or accountability. Uh, First, there's the criminal justice system and criminal prosecution, which we know very rarely actually effectively holds officers accountable. So nationwide, only about 1% of all cases where police kill somebody result in an officer being charged with a crime, any crime, uh, and even fewer than that result in a conviction. So that essentially doesn't work. The second strategy is administrative accountability, which is uh, essentially the department will fire or discipline the officer uh, through an administrative proceeding. Uh, Now, national data on excessive force cases collected by the Bureau of Justice Statistics shows that only 7% of all excessive force complaints result in a substantiated finding, meaning that the officers are able to be disciplined or fired as a result. Not all of them get disciplined or fired, but 7% is the best data that we have in terms of the extent to which a complaint of excessive force will result in some type of accountability. So that leaves 93% of cases where there is little to no accountability at all uh, when somebody reports excessive force. So enter qualified immunity. Qualified immunity refers to cases where officers uh, and departments are sued for, uh, among other things, excessive force. And what we've seen uh, in the courts over the past several decades is an effort to make it very hard for people who are victimized or attacked by the police to get any type of compensation or redress through this process. So a new investigation from Reuters uh, looked at 252 excessive force cases brought in the nation's appellate courts. And what they found was that in the majority of cases where officers are sued for excessive force, that the courts rule in favor of the officer and not the civilian who experienced the excessive force in 57% of cases that they've heard. Now, what's fascinating about this is they're actually able to track how a series of court decisions uh, made by the Supreme Court have made it even more difficult to actually seek redress through this process. In particular, there is a process uh, under qualified immunity, a doctrine whereby in order to actually have standing, uh, you have to prove that not only did the officers use excessive force, uh, but also that there was a clearly established case or precedent that what they did was in fact wrong and illegal Now, this sounds sort of straightforward, but it actually means quite a bit with regard to accountability, because what that means is if you can't show that there was a specific case in which another officer was ruled to have used excessive force in an almost identical situation, if you can't show that, then you're unlikely to actually prevail in the courts. And this is because of the Supreme Court's interpretation of a law that was actually passed in the 1870s during the Reconstruction period, uh, Section uh, 1983 which specifically allows for this process of suing uh, for civil rights violations in the courts. And what the courts have done since the 1960s is made it much harder uh, to actually prevail in those cases by introducing this clearly established standard. So this investigation by Reuters, what's so fascinating about it is uh, what they're actually able to show is that over time, uh, as the courts have made decision after decision after decision, narrowing what people can actually sue officers for that is not covered under the doctrine of qualified immunity. What we see in the data is that a smaller and smaller proportion of those cases results in a finding against an officer over time. Uh, so from 2005 to 2007, the data that they have on court cases shows that the majority of excessive force cases were actually ruled in favor of the civilian and not the police. Uh, but fast forward to 2017 through 2019, uh, and we have 57% of all cases ruled in favor of the police. Moreover, what they found was that the courts were actually intervening in ways that seemed to be intentionally designed uh, to expand the ways in which qualified immunity could be invoked to defend the police against any claims of excessive force. So what, what they found was that when the courts intervened to take up an excessive force case, they were 3.5 times more likely to intervene uh, in favor of the officer than a civilian. So they would take up a case in which the officer was actually found to commit excessive force by the lower courts and then overturn those cases in the majority of uh, cases that they heard. Um, So this is fascinating in part because there are very few mechanisms, as I described, actually hold police accountable in America. Most of those mechanisms only work in rare instances, but the vast majority of them do not result in any type of accountability. And while lawsuits remain one of the only mechanisms whereby a substantial proportion, anywhere from 40 to 50 percent of cases, is ruled in favor of the civilian, that that number is actually decreasing over time because of decisions made by the Supreme Court. And so as we head into the election, it's another reminder that the presidential election matters for a number of reasons, as we're experiencing, but it matters with regard to police violence uh, in this case because the composition of the court and the way that it is structured directly impacts the likelihood that people will be able to seek any type of redress when they are the subject of excessive force.
2: So what's interesting to me is I'm reminded that so much of how the lower courts make decisions about the police actually rests on things that we know aren't true today. So recently I was reading, Sam sent me a study about the police with regard to mental health training, and there's some interesting conclusions in that study. So I'm reading that study, and in reading that study, it references a host of other studies. So I'm like, you know what? I haven't seen these other studies, so let me just print them out. Let me read them too, because if I'm going to be an expert on this, I want to be an expert. So I print out this study. It's called the Bristow study, and the Bristow study was done in 1963. I don't think we've talked about this, Clint or Brittany, but this study is so fascinating because it is this study done in 1963 that... The conclusion that the researcher reaches is that a third of all the police officers who are killed in the United States are killed at traffic stops. This is actually the birth of the dangerous traffic stop that you see in TV and film being a dominant narrative. It's the birth of this image is like the traffic stop being equally as dangerous for police as it is for citizens. This whole narrative of The officer has a tough job. Traffic stops being this particularly dangerous thing comes from this study in 1963. So I read the study. I send it to Sam. I'm like, Sam, did you see this? Sam sees it. And we look at it and we're like, oh my goodness. The study samples, doesn't even sample. The study is just a reference of 111 cases. In the study, it literally says, quote, no attempt was made to obtain a random selection of these cases. Like the study is so flawed in so many ways that it is incredible that it has lasted this long. And I was just like, wow, but all across the country, people cite this idea of traffic stops as particularly dangerous. And it comes from this study. So in the interest of trying to figure out like what's the truth, I realized that there was another professor... Jordan Blair Woods, who is a law professor at the University of Arkansas School of Law, he has written an updated review of this called Policing Danger Narratives and Routine Traffic Stops put out in 2019. And his conclusion is fascinating because what he essentially shows is that there is no issue. Now, let me read his conclusions. He says, to summarize, the findings do not support the dominant danger narrative surrounding routine traffic stops. Based on a conservative estimate, I found that the rate for a felonious killing of an officer during a routine traffic stop for a traffic violation was only one in every 6.5 million stops. The rate for an assault that results in serious injury to an officer was only one in every 361,111 stops. Finally, the rate for an assault, whether it results in officer injury or not, was only one in every 6,959 stops. The Bristow study was a lie. It was a lie. It was a piece of police propaganda, but it has shaped the way that so many of us think about the work of policing with regard to traffic stops as dangerous. And this directly feeds into a lot of cases that actually get to the Supreme Court or that are appealed to the Supreme Court, because you'd be surprised at how many court decisions rest on faulty logic, or they reference things, they indirectly reference the Bristow study uh, in their conclusions. My news is about budgets. So, I've been reading a lot about some big city budgets because that is uh, where a lot of attention is always. But you should be looking at your budget because we know that in moments like this where the attention is so focused on the crisis that people sometimes don't even see policy being made because it's not on the news or there's no public hearing. In some places, the hearing has to be on Zoom, but that assumes that you know how to get on Zoom. So what's interesting is that The Intercept did a good overview of this, and they note that the United States—and this is actually from the Center for Popular Democracy— but the U.S. spends about $100 billion a year on policing, the vast majority coming from local budgets, uh, and then another $80 billion for incarceration. And you look at places—if you just look at New York City and you look at L.A., what you find is that they are cutting a lot of things, but not really cutting the police. When you look at New York City and you think about the education budget and you think about the NYPD's budget, the education budget is going to get cut by $640 million. And the NYPD's budget is going to get cut by $23 million. So like if you just look at those numbers, you're like, wow, schools got really hammered. And you're like, well, the police also took a big cut. But when you think about it, it's like the education budget is about five times the size of the police one. But the education cuts are 27 times as large as police cuts. And what is also interesting is that New York City, the Department of Youth by itself accounts for about 12 percent of the city's proposed cuts, even though they only make up 0.7 percent of the overall budget. Whereas in comparison, the NYPD accounts for only 1% of the plan cuts, but they make up 6% of the overall city budget. So like you look at these things in LA is even more shocking because you look in LA, LA is slashing services and they're doing furloughs. It's a $10.5 billion plan that includes cuts to every agency, big cuts to every agency except for the LAPD. If anything, the mayor in LA, Garcetti, has actually proposed $47 million in additional overtime for the LAPD in a moment where everything else is being cut. So you look at a housing cut that's a little bit over 9%, a jobs program cut that's around 9%. And then the police expenditure actually goes up by 7%. So you look at these things and you think about who is always worth cutting. Our kids are always okay to cut. Our food services always okay to cut. The things about families, about women, about welfare, always okay to cut. You have to ask yourself, why is the police always untouchable in this process? And again, we are not Pollyannas about the fact that some people make poor decisions, We also know that people make the best decisions when they have the best resources. We know that the safest communities are the places where people have all the resources that they need. It's not places where we just post up police. And right now during COVID, we're seeing historic drops in crime all happening at the same time. There's no reason for this
3: today right, this is such a critical piece of news especially in this moment where cities are understandably saying that they are losing resources that there is less tax revenue, that there is less tourism revenue, and that the funds that they have come to rely on in previous years are no longer accessible, and therefore, budgets are going to have to be slashed. But there always seems to be money for the things that they care about, especially policing. And in this moment, will we continue to see Black and brown people be unduly accosted by and experience violence at the hands of police, during a time when we see an enforcement of COVID-19 regulations be handed out disproportionately in Black and brown communities as compared to white ones, during a time as, as we discussed last week, the police are still killing just as many Black and brown people right now during this pandemic as they were before the pandemic started, you have to ask yourself, what is it going to take for the investment to change. And as you shared, DeRay, People's Budget LA has been fighting this for a long time because it's not just about the 7% increase in the police budget. It is also about that 9% decrease in housing and that 9% decrease in the investment in jobs. As you said, we know that an investment in communities doing better from the bottom up means that they don't have to be over-policed from the top down. We also know that investment in community services like summer jobs programs, community cleanup, does far more to prevent violent crime than our current carceral system does. So if this is actually about preventing crime, then there are many, many more things that are worth investing in than the police departments. We also know that Los Angeles continues to claim that their homelessness challenge is not something that they are able to solve. And yet they are able to find that additional $200 million in the midst of a pandemic to feed into the LAPD that was already receiving over 50% of its municipal budget. This is not a question of resources this is a question of priorities.
2: Don't go anywhere. More pots the People's coming.
3: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson and I use Made in Cookware.
1: Pot Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. at factormeals.com slash pstp50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
5: Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit
2: a dealer near you. Hey there, Brenda. of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down.
3: Today, we all saw either digitally or in person some of the names that the New York Times published. They were just some of the nearly 100,000 names of Americans who have died from COVID 19. As we talked about earlier, DeRay, we are so grateful that you were able to recover after contracting COVID 19. But unfortunately, there are so many of our friends and neighbors who were not quite so fortunate. The fact of the matter is because it wasn't a single incident, but rather a stretched out and in some ways indirect issue, so many of us have trouble capturing and fully understanding exactly how wide the disaster has been. But 100,000 people, nearly 100,000 people have lost their lives. And what we have to be very, very clear about is that much of this was preventable As the number approaches 100,000, President Donald Trump decided not to address the American people, not to dig in and figure out what to do about it, but instead to go golfing. But of course, the callousness did not begin today or just right now. Columbia University published a study that The Washington Post reported on They reminded us that there were sweeping measures that we experienced across America starting around March 15th, that there was a federal warning against large gatherings, that airports started doing health screenings, and states of emergencies were declared by governors and mayors across the country. But had those same widespread measures been declared just seven days earlier, we could have prevented as many as 36,000 deaths through early May. 36,000 deaths could have been prevented with just seven additional days of action at every single level of government. That study is stunning when you think about the fact that At the White House, they had started to learn about the threat of coronavirus as early as January. We have to grapple with the fact that much of this was avoidable. The existing inequities that continue to be felt even more harshly during this pandemic were avoidable. The inaction that we have seen at every level of government since the very beginning of this, those things were avoidable. The blame game that we saw a number of leaders decide to play with one another instead of digging in, working together and protecting the American people, that was avoidable. The sudden shift we've seen in public attitude and in governmental response when we found out that it was mostly black folks and indigenous folks and brown folks and poor folks who were dying disproportionately from this disease, that was all avoidable. The names that the New York Times listed and more, so many of those folks could still be alive if only folks had acted sooner, taken this more seriously, and if only we decide to remember, as we always say, that even while at home, we are a part of a community. Even if your state or city has opened back up, it is each of our responsibility to remember that we only get through this if we get through it together. I'm not just wearing a mask for myself. I'm wearing it to make sure that my neighbors and my community are protected. I'm not just staying inside to the very best of my ability for myself and my own health. I'm doing that so that everyone else's family can be healthy too. Until we decide to actually care about one another, because frankly, our government is not doing enough of this that for us, we're not going to figure out a way out of this.
5: Brittany, thank you for sharing that so forcefully and so so eloquently and so urgently. I'm thinking a lot about that number. I'm thinking a lot about what it means that 100,000 people have died in the span of about two months and the reality of the fact that that is likely an undercount given what we know and and that the number will continue to grow and expand as we account for the the deaths of more people who are uh, going to die as we move forward, and who have already died, but who have not necessarily been accounted for, there's a tension I think because part of what is true is that throughout human history, humans have always adapted to traumatic, difficult, uncertain circumstances, so that we are able to get up and move through the day. you know this has happened since the beginning of human civilization, and so i'm I'm sympathetic to the idea that we cannot be consumed by grief, that we cannot allow grief to make us crumble every single day as we encounter more names, thousands and thousands of names every day. I think there is a middle ground, though, for us to be able to recognize and mourn and properly account for the lives that have been lost, just so many lives, so many people in such a short period of time, while also navigating this moment carefully and thoughtfully and cognizant of the emotional precarity that it carries while also being able to honor the lives that we've been lost i just i just think that both can happen but part of what is so interesting is the lack of collective mourning that we have been experiencing as a country and and it starts from the top today as we approach 100,000 people our president is golfing and he is retweeting fatphobic Tweets about Stacey Abrams, and he is uh, retweeting, you know, white supremacist and conspiracy theories, and and suggesting that voting by mail is going to create the the largest voter fraud situation that this country has ever encountered. Even though that runs counter to all of the data and evidence we have for for voter fraud, and it, it is, if you had to imagine and come up in a lab with the person who is the least qualified and the worst possible person to be our leader in air quotes through this moment. I think that we have found that person, but there is something unsettling even, you know, beyond beyond just the the presidency or the white house about our inability to I think fully grasp what we are moving through right now. And I don't know if that means and I think we've experienced an analog with regard to gun violence and and the sort of gun violence epidemic where it just feels like people die and die and die and die in communities in school shootings across this country and so little changes and i don't know if that has to do we've talked a little bit on the podcast about how things might shift if we had to encounter the bodies of the people who have been shot if we had to see them if we had to see the real damage that bullets do to a body. And I wonder like, what ways can we provide access for people who are not necessarily proximate to someone who has suffered through this disease? How can we create a different level of emotional proximity so that they feel the the stakes of, of what is happening beyond the numbers that we're seeing? But these are, are real questions and I'm not sure what the right answer is, but, but I think I, like so many of us, are, are wrestling with them. So to finish this off for my news, I want to talk about something that's not necessarily, it's not COVID related, but something that I just learned uh, this week, which I thought was really fascinating and intuitively makes sense, but it, I just never encountered it. And it's this idea that the word marijuana has origins that are grounded, especially in an American context, that are grounded in a history of xenophobia which is fascinating. And so throughout the 19th century, news reports and medical journals almost exclusively used the plant's formal name, and they called it cannabis. Numerous accounts say that marijuana came into popular usage in the U.S. in the early 20th century because anti-cannabis factions and opponents wanted to underscore the drug's quote, Mexicanness, and it was meant to play off of these anti-immigrant sentiments. Harry Anslinger, uh, who is a bureaucrat that led the marijuana prohibition effort, is credited as saying back then, quote, There are over 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from the marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and others, end quote. The practice of smoking cannabis, for historical context, arrived in the U.S. from the South during the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, Mexican laborers and soldiers carried it to the American Southwest. Sailors brought it from Brazil and the Caribbean when they were docked in New Orleans, where jazz musicians often adopted the use of it. Eric Schlosser recounts some of the racially charged history of marijuana in his 1994 Atlantic article called Reefer Madness, and he says, The political upheaval in Mexico that culminated in the Revolution of 1910 led to a wave of Mexican immigrants to the states throughout the American Southwest. The prejudices and fears that greeted these peasant immigrants are also extended to the traditional means of intoxication, which was smoking marijuana. Police officers in Texas claim that marijuana incited violent crimes, aroused a, quote, lust for blood, and gave users superhuman strength. Rumors spread that Mexicans were distributing this, quote, killer weed to unsuspecting American schoolchildren. Sailors and West Indian immigrants brought the practice of smoking marijuana to port cities along the Gulf of Mexico. In New Orleans, articles associated the drug with black people, jazz musicians, prostitutes, and, quote, underworld whites. The marijuana menace, as it was called by many anti-drug campaigners, was personified by inferior races and social deviance. So to bring this To our current moment, in 2016, there were almost 600,000 U.S. marijuana arrests, more than there were for all violent crimes combined that year. The vast majority of those pot arrests were for low-level possession and disproportionately affected Black and Latino communities. Today, statistics show, as we know and have talked about on many occasions, that different races use marijuana at roughly the same rate. But Black people and that next people are far more likely to face punishment. According to the ACLU, between 2001 and 2010, Black people were arrested for marijuana at almost four times the rate of their white counterparts. Now, relatively few of the 600,000 people uh, that I alluded to before will serve extended prison sentences for marijuana-related offenses, but having a past conviction can still block access to housing, student loans, and employment. And we see this refrain of fear-mongering in our contemporary political landscape as well. For example, in 2016, when former Attorney General Jeff Sessions said, quote, good people don't smoke marijuana, end quote. And I just wanted to bring this up, one, because I just had no idea about the the sort of xenophobic origins of marijuana and the way that it was In the early 20th century, how the usage of that word was used in a very intentional way in an American context to stoke anti-immigrant, xenophobic, anti-Mexican sentiment. Uh, And I just thought it was a reminder of the ways that language is intentionally used both by people who are attempting to move toward justice. And I was also very intentionally used by people who are trying to uh, create a sense of fear, who are trying to create a sense of chaos, and who are trying to misrepresent the reality that is in front of us, you know, whether it is marijuana or whether it is immigration or whether it is incarceration, that language is so central to how we form our opinions about things and how propaganda
4: uh, is used to, to shape the opinions of the public so clint thanks for bringing this news to the pod because i didn't know much about this history either and it's fascinating to see sort of the parallels between the way that marijuana was sort of invented as like a a real public menace uh playing on this sort of racist and xenophobic impetus against mexican americans and black folks And seeing the parallels between that and uh, sort of the the crack epidemic that we saw across the country several decades ago, and how, you know, like cocaine and crack are actually the same thing. It's like the same substance, but suddenly crack became a public menace in the national conversation, became something that needed harsher drug sentencing laws and uh, needed uh, a increased police force to deal with in much the same way, repeating the pattern that happened prior in the... 1910s and 1920s with marijuana, where, you know, rather than cannabis, it was marijuana and this massive public menace that was being brought into the country and uh, needed all of these criminalized responses. So just seeing sort of history repeat itself and the ways in which racism and xenophobia continues to inform the ways in which uh, the U.S. regards particular substances, particular plants, uh, as a crime or not, um, depending on you know the political and racial uh, dynamics of of who is using uh, or who is making money off of or who is deemed to uh, be responsible for having those things. You know, just to build off of what you were saying around the data uh, with marijuana arrests today, um, you know, you cited the 2016 numbers uh, with about 600,000 marijuana uh, related arrests nationwide according to the FBI's uniform crime report. Um, well their most recent report from 2018 shows that actually the number of marijuana arrests is increasing nationwide. So despite um, so many states legalizing marijuana, including California and many of the largest states in the country, nevertheless, marijuana arrests are increasing. So in 2018, there were 661,000 marijuana arrests. Uh, 92% of all of those arrests were for marijuana possession. Uh, Only about 8% of the arrests were for sales uh, or trafficking. And that compares to 551,000 arrests for all violent crimes combined in 2018. So again, 660,000 compared to 550,000 for violent crime arrests. So it's just a huge, huge challenge, even despite all of the legalization initiatives and decriminalization initiatives Uh, It remains a huge issue. Uh, People continue to be arrested all across the country for marijuana possession. They continue to be disproportionately black and brown. Uh, And we really need to fundamentally end the criminalization of marijuana and think about what does repairing that harm look like? How do we reinvest in communities that have been destroyed and dismantled by uh, nearly a century of prohibition on marijuana?
2: That's the news. If you have a heart attack, you go to the hospital. Kid is sick, you call the pediatrician. So why do those rules change when it comes to addiction? When you or a loved one needs immediate help, it's hard to know where to go or what to do. That's why we turn to Dr. Singer Harrison. She's a physician, board certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine, and her new podcast is called In Recovery and it's from Lemonada Media and I love it. I learned so much in this conversation. Happy to share with you. Let's go. Dr. Harrison, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People.
0: Thank you. Super excited to be here.
2: Now, I'm excited to talk about a host of things, and you uh, have a new podcast called In Recovery that is on a network very close to our hearts. Uh, So I can't wait to learn more about that, too. But can you talk about why did you want to become a doctor? Like, what was that path to practicing medicine?
0: Yeah. So it's actually, I always make a joke, started way back in 1970 in Indianapolis. But it's true. So I was a a young black girl growing up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I didn't have doctors in my family. Um, And I had a pediatrician, and I didn't feel like my pediatrician was a good doctor. And what's interesting is, like, at five years old, how do you even know that, right? Um, But I decided medicine is amazing, and I think I could be an amazing doctor. I'm going to be a doctor, and I'm going to be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. My dad was commander of the Black Panther Militia at the time. So at that time, the only kind of doctor I knew about was pediatrician. I decided to be a pediatrician. Fast forward to eighth grade, I had really significant scoliosis. Your, your audience is like, wow, she's telling all the details. Um, but I had to get an orthopedic surgeon, although luckily I avoided surgery. And he was, in my opinion, the best doctor I had ever met, period. And looking back, the difference between him, I didn't have medical knowledge, right, so I couldn't know about expertise, but the difference between him and the pediatrician that I didn't think so great was that he took an individual interest in me, it felt like, as a person. So even though I only saw him every three months, he seemed to know what was important to me, what was going on in my life. He explained what was going on, even though it, it was my parents making the decisions, like he made sure that I was comfortable with things that gave me autonomy. And at that point, I decided that's the kind of doctor I'm going to be, a pediatric surgeon who cares about her patients at the individual level. Um, And so I set about to do that and, you know, love science and data and evidence and chemistry. Organic chemistry was my absolute favorite. Went to medical school and, like, pretty quickly realized that my visual spatial skill is not great. So, (laughs) gross anatomy. I was like, oh, everything inside this body looks the same. Maybe (laughs) surgeon is not the best use that I could be to patients. And so I set about kind of figuring out what would be a different specialty that I could love. Uh, I did not consider psychiatry a medical specialty uh, because the only thing I knew about psychiatry was Freud laying on a couch. I didn't know that there was a very significant biological science, evidence-based genetic component and so when I did my psychiatry rotation in medical school, it was instantly a great fit. It was biological. It was science. It was genetics. It was data. It was life. It was psychological. It was relationships, which has always been very important to me, um, is a part of medicine that other doctors like, knew very little about. So the, education, the, the chance to be a teacher and an educator was there. And then very importantly, this doctor who was teaching me was an addiction specialist. And I have a lot of addiction in my family, and so kind of firsthand knowledge of the pain that can come with addictive disorders, but also just the way society kicks people with addiction into the gutter, that tapped the activism in me. So I was raised an activist, and I was like, here is a biological science that has everything to do with relationships that is among the marginalized people ripe for activism and education
2: And Dr. Harrison was born. Boom. I too have a history of addiction in my family. And I'm always interested in how we talk about issues of recovery, how we think about public policy around recovery and addiction, and what we do to actually track outcomes. I know that the first episode of your new podcast was Pregnant and Afraid that talks about a listener's attempt to get help while pregnant uh, with opioid use. I can only imagine the range of issues that you deal with, especially when we think about addiction. What are some things that we should probably know that should make it to the public conversation that just like haven't made it?
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. I love this question. So number one, fundamentally, substance use disorders are chronic medical conditions, just like high blood pressure, just like diabetes, just like asthma. And so one thing people don't know is that we talk in medicine about the heritability of an illness, and so that's like, what percentage of your risk for developing that illness is just coded in your DNA, passed down generation to generation? And so if you just ask people, you would say, which one do you think is more heritable, right? So it's another way to ask the question, like, what do you think people have less control over because of their DNA? Would you guess, I'll ask you, Duray. would you guess diabetes or would you guess addiction?
2: Uh, Probably addiction. Banking on just the sheer number of families I know impacted, In a way that they are not impacted by diabetes, I would say addiction.
0: You are exactly right. Okay. So if we look at the heritability of diabetes, asthma, hypertension, I should say specifically diabetes type two, those hover between 35 and 40%. So 35 and 40% of your risk for developing any of those chronic conditions are coded in your DNA. And then the rest of whether you actually develop it or not has everything to do with your life experiences. Addiction's heritability is between 40 and 60%. So higher than asthma, higher than diabetes, higher than hypertension, right? And so we put so much on people like for somehow it is your own fault that you developed addiction, even though 40 to 60% of that person's risk was coded in their DNA. And then if you look at what we're doing with the other 40%, like how many of our kids are having experiences where their basic needs are not met, home insecurity, food insecurity, neglect, abuse, all of that is compounding that already 40 to 60% risk that exists. So the first thing I would say for your audience is, in that way, substance use disorders are not different from high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma. It is just purely by stigma that we conceptualize them as different from those other chronic medical illnesses. That's one. Two, I would say people don't think treatment for addiction works. And so if you look in medicine at the definition of relapse and remission, remission is when you have an illness and the symptoms are under control. Just because the symptoms are under control doesn't mean the illness is gone. So like diabetes, you have diabetes, we get some weight loss, we get some healthy eating, we get some exercise, possibly we get insulin or oral diabetes medication, your blood sugar is perfect, it's beautiful. Your diabetes is an intermission. Doesn't mean you don't have diabetes. If for whatever confluence of life factors, your blood sugar were to go back up, so you go on vacation and you go on a cruise or your stress goes up, right, all of these physiological things that drive blood sugar. Your blood sugar goes up, we would say your diabetes relapsed. When we look at the relapse for diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, at one year after remission, the relapse rate for those conditions are the same as the relapse rate for addiction. We don't look at diabetes and say treatment for diabetes doesn't work. We don't look at asthma and say treatment for asthma doesn't work, and it's because we don't put as much emotional valence on a diabetic relapse or an asthmatic relapse as we do on an addiction relapse. And so the, the parting line to put those two concepts together is addictive disorders are the same, if not more, inherited than other chronic medical conditions and respond as effectively to adequate treatment as do other chronic medical conditions. Two very common misconceptions, very widely held among the general
2: public. I'm sure that people hear that and they're like, Okay, I'm with I'm with her, got it, da-da-da. But then they'll say, like, yeah, but nobody made you start drinking, nobody made you start taking heroin, nobody made you start taking cocaine, whereas like I just woke up one day and I had diabetes, or like I just got a chronic illness, like I didn't do a set of things that led to it. What do you say to those people?
0: Yeah, so on one hand, you didn't just wake up and have diabetes, type 2 diabetes I'm talking about, because like 9, 10, and 11-year-olds do wake up and have type 1 diabetes. But type 2 diabetes, you did not just wake up and have that. Essential hypertension, the, the high blood pressure that most people know about, you did not wake up and just have that, right? Like, it is the culmination of an entire life that led to you developing type 2 diabetes, partly is your DNA, partly are the life experiences that you have nature and nurture. The same is exactly true for substance use disorders. So no, nobody, quote unquote, made you take that first drink, but as a society, culturally, do we start priming kids to look forward to their first drink from the time they come out of the womb? We do, right? Everything you see on TV, drinking is amazing everything you see in the movies, everything you see at the Super Bowl, right? It's like drinking is this amazing thing. And when you get 21, you will also be able to do this amazing thing. And so you take two different people that take that first drink and one person is more genetically loaded, but one person also has early life experiences that load them even more. And that person develops an alcohol use disorder. You blame them even though two people took that drink you blame that person for developing an illness, which is very much as a result, not necessarily only of their choices. And so what I try to tell people is like, just step back if we can really think about it as an illness. I tell my own kids this, I got tons of addiction in my family. I have addiction and other mental health illnesses in my family. So I'm like, your friend might be able to smoke a joint, might be able to smoke marijuana, right? Because around 14, 15 years old, Experimenting is normal behavior. So your friends might be able to do that and be perfectly fine. You might do that and get psychotic because of your DNA, right? You might go to college and doing lines at a party is not necessarily a big deal at college. and that person is perfectly fine, your DNA predicts that you do that first line and that's putting you on a path to a very severe lifelong illness. But we don't give that kind of education to people. And so we can't blame people for not knowing their risk. We can't blame people for their genetic loading. We can't blame people for their early lifehood experiences that were unstable and traumatic and abusive and neglectful, right? And so what I say to my patients when I'm taking care of them is, I don't blame you for having this illness. It's not your fault that you have this illness. But now that you have this illness, it is your responsibility to seek out the treatment that can help your illness be better, right? Just the same way as a person with diabetes. It's not their fault they have diabetes, but it is their responsibility to seek out treatment to help that diabetes get better.
2: Now, you talked about being a parent, and I'm always interested in the things that we undertake in our lives that change the way we think about so much. And for a lot of people, parenting sort of shifts the way that they think about the world and their relationship to the world and their relationship to other people. I'd love to know how being a mother has impacted the way you think about public health, if it has at all, or the way you think about recovery or the way you think about addiction.
0: Wow. I love this question. So being a mother has impacted and changed the way basically that I think about all things, right? So, When I had my kids, I said to myself, the most important thing I will do in this entire lifetime is mother these kids. So that is my responsibility. The healthiest way to raise kids, it is stability and unconditional acceptance. Stability and unconditional acceptance, right? And so I just started, like, reading avidly, and if your listeners have heard of this adverse childhood experiences study, the ACEs study it's a list of fourteen things that when kids have these experiences, each one gets one point. once you get four points or more, that predicts for your entire lifetime exponentially increasing risk with each additional point for all basically every chronic medical illness. it predicts cigarette smoking, it predicts alcohol drinking, it predicts other substance use disorders. It predicts diabetes, asthma, high blood pressure. It predicts preterm delivery for women, like literally everything. And so I said very early on, if I do nothing else, I'm going to try to keep my kids ACEs score below four. Some of them you can't control. Like some of it is like a loved one dies, right? Like I don't have control over who lives and dies. And so But if my kids have an ACES score that's one, it's going to be something like that that I can't control. And this idea of unconditional acceptance, like I'm a Virgo, so I don't know if you believe in astrology, but in general, Virgos are like pretty judgmental. And so I just had to step back and be like, when my kids bring something to me, even if I disagree with it, I have to let them know that I disagree with the choice they made. I disagree with the behavior that they did, but I don't assign that to their identity, right? Like the only identity you have is as my child. And as my child, you have inherent value and worth to me that I will always love, period. Now, you might get in trouble for some decisions. And I might be like, I don't expect you to act like that, but that's not saying anything about you as a person because your inherent value, I don't ever want my kids to question what I think about their inherent value. And that has informed all of the choices that I have tried to make. And, you know, I I have to say tried to make because I know these things, but life is harder to do than it is to say, right? But that motivation underlines everything that I do since they've been born.
2: As a medical professional, how do you think through the COVID moment? So we obviously know, you know, Black people are disproportionately impacted both by deaths and by infections. We know that these disparities didn't just, like, come to be. The disparities are just magnified in moments like this. But what can we do? Like, what's the public policy response? What should people be fighting for? Like, And I'd also be interested to know, is addiction exacerbated in moments like this or do people just stop using? Like, what does that look like?
0: Yeah. So the first thing, you're exactly right. Pandemics and epidemics do more damage to those who are already marginalized. That's going to be true for anything. The more resources you have, the better you will do in any situation. And that's not just financial resources. That's like support system and access to systems that are not discriminating and racist against you, right? And so it is no shocker that the COVID pandemic is disproportionately affecting Black people because the systemic racism in healthcare, like healthcare literally like the rest of the systems in this country, were built on racism. And while there's been a lot of movement in the right direction... Anybody that says systemic racism is not fundamentally embedded in all of our systems is somebody that does not want to see it. And so when you talk about what is the number one, like, easiest, most fundamental thing from a policy perspective that can happen, I love this phrase, which is, if you don't measure it, you can't change it. Things that get measured get better. And so the fact that it is not just required that all 50 states are reporting COVID cases, COVID infections, positive tests, and deaths by race and ethnicity is absolute blatant disregard for trying to make a difference for populations that are marginalized because of race and ethnicity and the systemic racism constructs in this country. So number one, you need to be advocating that your state and all the way down to your county level is reporting to you their data on cases testing and deaths by race. Because once you start measuring it and you, the disparities are there in objective data points, then it is more difficult to pretend that the difference is not there and that motivates change and specific interventions to happen. So that's what I would say if I just had to choose one policy difference that could make a difference, um, it would be measuring by race and ethnicity and reporting it, being accountable to that data. The question, is coronavirus making addiction worse? The answer is yes. So we actually have precedence for this. I was just um, reading this really great article the other day that was uh, how did substance use disorders respond to Hurricane Katrina, a uh, natural disaster. And so this really has all of the makings of a natural disaster it, for the average person fell upon us out of nowhere, completely disrupted our social routine, disconnected us from our social activities, changed everything, introduced a lot of uncertainty, not sure when things are going to get better. So it has many of the same components of a natural disaster. And What we know is that under times of stress, we seek comforting behaviors. So alcohol is comforting. Sales are up 55% across the country. Other substances, marijuana is comforting. I, I don't <laughs> have statistics on marijuana. My hypothesis is that it is up. Drug use is comforting. Right. Use is probably up as a part of people trying to cope. But then also things changed so quickly. Overwhelmingly, addiction treatment was in person in group settings, which is exactly what coronavirus took away from us. So some people precipitously lost their access to the treatment that's keeping their illness in remission. Those folks are suffering we have so much stigma, it was already hard to find a place to go. Coronavirus has made it even harder to find a place to go. Those folks are suffering. And so it remains to be seen after Hurricane Katrina, um, addiction rates did go up and stay up in Louisiana. It remains to be seen. We just have to follow the data to look and see if we're gonna have that same type of pattern after COVID, but the prediction is that we will.
2: Can you talk about rehab, uh, rehab clinics? Is that happening at all? Like, if you were in a rehab clinic and then coronavirus emerges, what happens?
0: Yeah, so um, it's differential, right? So when you look at the spectrum of, quote, rehab centers, then it's all the way from the smallest mom and pop kind of operating out of their house all the way up to big, large conglomerates. And so, for example, I don't know that we would be considered a rehab center. I'm co-founder and chief medical officer of a company called Eleanor Health. We do outpatient treatment. We built ourselves from the beginning to be, quote, tech enabled. So we were already doing some virtual services when COVID came. That made it a lot easier as part of our care model to actually be able to just quickly make the transition to majority virtual services for people. Other companies and other people who were getting treatment from other companies didn't have it so easy, right? Because overwhelmingly, addiction treatment is not tech-enabled. All of the visitors just in person. They don't have the ability to do telehealth. So I know there were companies that closed for two weeks. There were companies that closed completely for longer than that. There are companies that are not accepting new patients right now, all because of the increased effort and the need for technology around social distancing that they have not been able to do. And so it really varies. Many have been able to make the transition to virtual. A lot of people fell through the cracks. A lot of companies fell through the cracks. And so we're entering a little bit now into what will probably show who's going to make it in terms of, quote, rehabs and who's not.
2: Going through the recovery process with people, what's the hardest part of that process for them? Like, what's the part that you see the most people struggled through?
0: The cliche, which I always say they're cliches because they're true, um, like the first step is the hardest step. And there are a couple of reasons why the first step is the hardest step. So the first step being able even to raise your voice and say, I need help, or being able to know where to even get that help once you um, kind of recognize that you need help. So a couple of things feed that. One is that I always say addiction is an illness of the brain. And the brain is responsible for thinking, feeling, decision-making, impulse control, recognizing when things are right and when things are not right. And so just purely by fact that it is the brain that is affected by this illness, there is some decreased ability to recognize this is a problem because you're asking the organ that's not working well to do that work. Um, But also we put so much stigma and shame on addiction That even once you start to realize that there may be a problem, there's so much shame and stigma that it's hard to raise your voice and say, I think I might have a problem. And so what happens if you take it out of addiction for a minute and take it more into like physical health realm, what happens is that we're really forcing people to have a major stroke before they can raise their voice and say, I think there's a problem. And so just like in, you know, we don't want to wait until you have a heart attack to start addressing your risk factors. What we need to do as a community and as a country is to start making it easier for people to speak up when they see that they have their risk factors and providing the education about the risk factors and what they are. So I would say after taking the first step when people have been engaged, I've been taking care of this, and I've spent a long time now, like almost 20 years, I've been taking care of people, probably the most common difficult thing is repairing the relationships that have suffered because of the illness. That is extremely difficult and extremely painful work, both for the person who has the addiction, but also for their loved ones and their support system who have also been experiencing the symptoms of those addiction as a result of being in their circle, because it can be so painful and so devastating and forgiveness can be hard to find and hope can be hard to find because family members feel like I'm scared to hope one more time because I feel like the hope rug is going to get pulled out from under me at some point in the future. Um, So that's probably the hardest part of the work is helping my people be able to repair those relationships that have been injured by the illness.
2: Now, I wanted to ask you because uh, way long ago on the pod, I said something critical of methadone clinics and got a flood of people telling me I was wrong.
0: What did you say, DeRay?
2: So my father's been in recovery for 30 years. My father has supported a lot of people through the process. And he is just not a fan of methadone clinics. So in growing up, he would always talk about the spaces that you know, do help keep people alive. But he's like, I've just seen too many people replace the thing they were addicted to with like an addiction to what they got from the methadone clinic. He's just like, I've never seen it be like the great public policy thing that people try to convince me that it is. So I was was asking questions in that spirit and people were like, da, da, da. And I, you know, so now that you're here, I would love to know like, what do we think of methadone clinics? What do we think about inpatient? And sort of, there is this thing. And I think I said something like this too, that I'm interested in like what the richest, wealthiest people, what's the treatment they get. And like, if they're not going to methadone clinics and why are we sending other people to methadone clinics? Like, I'm just trying to understand better. So you like, can you help me?
0: Yes, I can help you. So it's a whole lot wrapped up in this question. What, what, quote-unquote, the rich people are doing is also not working, okay? So we can't necessarily use that as a benchmark. You could go to a luxury 30-day rehab on the beach in Malibu that includes riding horses and personal chefs, and at the end of those 30 days, your substance use disorder is not going to be cured, and that's what a lot of people think. Like, if I just had enough money, I could go pay thirty to $100,000 for this one month, and then things would be fine. Remember, I first started talking about chronic medical illness. When you talk about a chronic medical illness, there are biological reasons that illness develops. There are psychological reasons. There are sociocultural reasons. And when there are biological, psychological, and sociocultural reasons that an illness develops, if you really want to get that illness in remission and keep it in remission, then you have to have a longitudinal biological, psychological, social cultural plan. Just like every other illness, Addiction comes on a severity spectrum, right? So there are some people, this is getting at your dad's comment about methadone just being a replacement. I'm just going to go on the record and say dad is wrong about that, okay? There are some people that have diabetes, and it's mild, and it can be controlled with diet and exercise. And they diet in their exercise, and their blood sugar stays normal, and their diabetes stays in remission. There are other people that have diabetes, and it's severe, And no matter how much they diet and exercise, and no matter how healthy and well-balanced their health routine is, and no matter how low they keep their stress, they're going to need four medications and periodically have to go to the hospital because their blood sugar is out of control, purely as a result of the biology driving the severity of their illness. The same is true for addiction, right? So there are some people that have an addictive disorder who will be able to get that illness in remission without using a the medication. There are some people's illness who could be, quote-unquote, doing everything else right, and the illness is so severe that a medication is necessary. And so is methadone perfect? Definitely 100% not. Does the data absolutely show that methadone prevents opioid overdose deaths? 100%. Does the data show that methadone predicts remission at one year for an opioid use disorder? 100%, right? So you have to, you can't look at the data and say 20 years of data shows that methadone saves lives and throw methadone in the trash. Is there an opportunity to improve on methadone? Definitely. Is there an opportunity to improve on the regulations? Getting to your point, what are the rich people doing? Because you're exactly right. We would not ask rich people to go to a dirty, dingy, got to go every single day and stand outside in the government line for methadone. We would never ask people to do that, right? But that's not the medications issue. That's the systemic marginalization of the healthcare system, putting that on top of methadone as a result of substance use disorders being stigmatized as a result of people with lower socioeconomic status being devalued. So I am not want to put that social construct on methadone. But are, can it be better? Medicine can always be improving. So in my opinion, buprenorphine is better than methadone because you don't have to go every day and you don't have to, you know, completely tether your life to a dingy clinic where you have to go to every single morning at 5 o'clock in the morning. There are definitely improvements. But the idea that you're just replacing one addiction for another is not the case. All of the medications and all of medicine that we prescribe have risks and benefits. One of the risks of methadone is addiction. Yes. That's why there's so much regulation around it. But guess what? One of the risks of sleeping medicine is addiction. And so when we take it out and treat some other illness that's not so stigmatized, we feel okay about using medication for that. But we don't feel okay about using medication for addiction disorders because we think people somehow should just be able to do it. That's underappreciating the biological component of addiction.
2: Boom. Well, thanks for joining us today on Pod of the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back.
0: Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you giving me the time.
2: Well... That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
4: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.